When I got out of MLM, I was overwhelmed by shame, regret, guilt, and loneliness. But sharing my story has helped free me up, and I want to invite you to do the same, either publicly or anonymously, as a catalyst for your healing. The From Huns to Humans podcast is a proud supporter of the hashtag I Got Out movement. Learn more and find resources at igotout.org. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, hon, it's me, Danielle. I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor, and I'm here to talk about all the ways multi-level marketing and mental health do not mix. It is important to know that this podcast is not meant to diagnose or for treatment. This podcast is based off of personal experiences and opinions and is meant to educate and entertain. Now sit back and start healing with me on this episode of From Huns to Humans. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of From Hunts to Humans. I am so excited today. I have Lila here, and I have been stalking her Instagram for probably the last four months, and finally got the courage to message her and send her a nice "Hey, girl" message and see if she wanted to come on the pod. So, welcome. Do you want to just share who you are and how you got into the MLM world? Sure. Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I am really, really happy to be here. And I am so shocked that you had the instinct to ask me if I had an MLM experience since that is not at all what my public platform alludes to. Um, So I am a stripper, an author, and an anti-misogyny educator. And um I, I do have an MLM story in the depths of my closets, but it also is really relevant to the work that I do today, which is mostly centered around trying to shine lights on the ways that systemic oppression can be and often is very present in our interpersonal relationships, whether that's our relationships with ourselves with each other individually, uh, you know, one-on-one or like whether it's with our communities in more like group relationships. Um, So that could be something like a society, a culture, or say an MLM. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I'm really, really grateful to have the opportunity to tell this story publicly. Um, 
and and be able to relate it contextually to what I do. So I'll try to go, I'll try to go broad strokes, <laughs> not get too detailed that I can't, I can't promise because I am, um, I am neurodivergent as hell and also uh, a Virgo with, uh, I don't know if any, if there's any astro nerds out there. I tend to talk a lot, <laughs> talky girl. So um, I'm 34 now. And when I was about maybe 25, I became a stripper. I'm from Boston and I, I started dancing in Boston and I wanted to move out to California um, to study uh, a form of dance that was not related to stripping. But I was like, I, I started stripping because I was like, I'm never going to make enough money to like move to Cali and I got to make this money and go. So I did. And then um, I moved to Cali in fall of 2014. And then from California, I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon, where I had been a stripper in California as well. And then in Portland, Oregon, I stopped stripping because um, just the laws there, I was not comfortable. It's like a fully nude and full contact in most of the clubs. And I wasn't comfortable with that setup. Um, so I was like, Ugh, I, I'm going to have to like find a way to make money that's not stripping. And I was like nannying, like part-time working at a thrift shop part-time, just like really struggling, not, not really just barely covering the bills, you know? And, um, and I went on Craigslist. This was, this is a lot, this is 2015 at this point. This is a while ago. And I went on Craigslist looking for some type of work. And some, there was some ad that was like, are you into fitness and helping people? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> and, yeah, it does. Yeah, why not? Um, and at that stage in my life, like I, okay, let me, again, broad strokes, broad strokes. Okay, let me go full story and then we'll go back. Um, so this, I answered this ad and somebody messaged me and it turned out to be, I, oh, I had never heard of an MLM. Like I just didn't know anything about an MLM. I didn't know what it was like to be approached in my inbox in like a hey hun type of way. It just had never happened to me. Um, and so the person who had posted the ad was somebody very high up in the organization Beachbody. Um, she happened to be one of the like original, I think one of like the first group of coaches, quote unquote coaches from Beachbody. Um, and so she gave me her whole spiel, whatever. And I'm thinking, of course, like my internal instincts are going like, this is sounds too good to be true. Like I can like, first of all, I was like, I'm, I was very clear with her. I was like, Hey, like I have training. Luckily I was a yoga teacher. So I had this anatomy training and, um, and was a dancer. And so I had like, thankfully had the training it takes to keep people safe when they're exercising, but right. that was just by chance. And I am not like the only certification I have is yoga teacher training. And I'm not like a personal trainer, nothing. And I like told her all this stuff and she's like, Oh, you don't need to even do, don't even worry about that. Da, da, da. And telling me about all the, you know, the great money I could make and helping people and all this stuff. And I totally, I totally, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. Cause I'm also that kind of person. Um, and especially I wasn't in a conscious relationship with my neurodivergence back then. So I was very impulsive without noticing my impulsivity. Um, and at least these days I notice it, <laughs> Just watch it happen. <laughs> I don't always do anything about it. But <laughs> yeah, no, um, exactly. Yeah. You know, and so, um, 
very quickly, I was like sucked into Beachbody and I wanted to make money. Like I wasn't like there for, oh, I want this to be part-time or whatever. Like I had gotten used to stripper money and I was like, I have an entrepreneurial spirit and I was like, let's do it. Um, and so the other interesting thing that was happening was because I was, my upline in that situation was somebody so high up in Beachbody. She had, um, you know, she had an empire to protect and she took a shine to me because I was so receptive to the process that she wanted me to go through, which included things like getting up at 4am and doing my workouts and fucking measuring out my food and all this stuff. And, and sidebar, which we could definitely tangent into, I certainly had disordered eating throughout all of my teenage years and into my twenties. And this, my experience in Beachbody was very triggering in that department and also was like perfectly aligned with allowing me to create excuses for myself, not to look at the fact that I was like over exercising and restricting my food. Cause I was like, Oh, this is health. This is fitness. Cause I also like was, I was buying into that larger cultural myth about, um, quote unquote fitness being, being about this, like very stringent self-punishing routine and essentially not eating enough. Um, and so I'm sure, I know you've talked about Beachbody on your um, podcast before, but so like a, the whole thing was like, I wanted to become a quote unquote coach. Cause I knew that's how you made money. And, and I do like helping people and fast forward, I'm a coach now. And I do think that uh, in my own business, yeah. and I do think that like, I'm grateful that Beachbody introduced me to that concept because I really didn't, I didn't really know about coaching before, <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to want to credit them with teaching me how to be a good coach. <laughs> I want to credit right. my good coaches. <laughs> right. Me right. That. They definitely <laughs> teach you all of the things that you're not supposed to do. And I think also yes. this is a side tangent that we can talk about later too, that I'm very interested in is the topic of unlearning some of that and trying to because some of the stuff is stuff that real businesses do but then it's all like foggy with cult stuff yes yes and I it and that's really I'm I'm grateful so right away I was like love bombed by my upline and I'm actually really grateful for that what happened because she she was pulling me into all these meetings because she saw that I was really focused and dedicated and that I was like on my shit. Um, and so all of a sudden I had all these, this access to all these like trainings and stuff that she wanted me to consume, but they weren't all beach body trainings. They were trainings on like how to um, build, build habits, how to manage my time, how to do all these things that like, as an undiagnosed neurodivergent person, I actually really needed. And they were, you know, they were like TED talks and stuff like that. So I had this like plethora of resources and books. Um, It was the first time I ever did any type of like conscious self-growth work outside of what I had been assigned to do in yoga teacher training. Um, And so like in yoga teacher training, I had really worked on like my relationship with myself and now in like all the the stuff I was doing in conjunction with the MLM I was getting training on how to actually be like a leader 
but uh, but that training was not coming from within the MLM. It just happened to be the material she was sending to me. But what quickly started to happen is that as I started to build my downline of coaches um, and suck other people into what I did not know was a cult and a scheme, um, not only was I not making money, my downline wasn't making money. And I also was very quickly experiencing the cognitive dissonance of like, okay, if this is how I am to be a, you know, just an equitable leader in a business setting, I cannot then do the things that my coach is telling me I have to do, which is like strong arm people into buying my products. Like it was, I was, I was receiving training from Beachbody to be like extremely pushy to, you know, all the classic shit, like cold message people, um, get in people's social media, add people on social media. The reason I got Instagram was because my Beachbody coach like insisted that I make an Instagram. And then she taught me how to be a bot. She, I didn't have any concept for any of this stuff. I didn't even, wasn't even on Instagram. So I didn't know how it worked. And she taught me how to like use hashtags to like, like auto follow other people's accounts and do like a follow for follow. Like this, I don't even, it's just probably illegal. I don't even know like if you can even still do that, but there was ways I could set up my Instagram so that it would follow anybody's account who had the hashtag fitness or whatever. And so my Insta was like, auto following other people's Instagrams. And then, so I was getting follows back from people who were interested in these subjects, like fitness and working out and whatever, which is so predatory. It's so predatory to like, you know, I wasn't even, it it was just, it was so, it was so much like the, the way I was taught to use social media was so predatory, but also at the same time, I did not have any other business training. And so, and I'm also autistic. So as an autistic person, I, I didn't understand that like cold DMing people and being like, Hey, I'm so interested in you. I think you're so interesting and cool. Like I was like, is this how people talk? Like, I guess this is how people DM each other. But all that happened is that everybody thought I was a fucking catfish. So I was like DMing random dudes I went to high school with that I hadn't talked to in 10 years. And like, or like, and like their friends, we were taught to like cold DM random people. We don't know. Cause you run out of warm leads really fast. And so I'm like DMing within the first month, I'm like DMing 25 strangers a day or some shit like that. And like, I also, I'm, I'm putting, I've public, it's public that I'm a stripper. Like this is like, it's all mixed in. And so I'm like this random stripper girl, like messaging people, cold messaging people, like, Hey, hey, you're so cool. Like, what the fuck? And I just didn't, I couldn't really see the, I appreciate the laughter that I see on your face. Right oh now. my God. Well, I can just imagine that, like, being on the receiving end of that and being like, so, like, I feel like you're trying to recruit me into your pyramid scheme, but are you trying to, like, flirt with me? Or are you trying, yes! like, you know, because, like, people don't understand that, like, you know, you're, you're a stripper as a job that doesn't yeah. mean that you're just, like, putting your boobs on everyone's face everywhere you go like that's they're not the same thing you know what I mean totally but the energy that I was told to put out what I I was like I guess this is sales which is really funny because I was I'm a I'm a good stripper I'm a good salesperson as a stripper but I the skills that I had as a stripper those were 
things that I acquired through experience and like for some reason wasn't able to make the leap that like why aren't I using those skill sets here like why does this feel gross but me being a stripper feels fine like me doing sales as a stripper or before that as a waitress whatever that all felt fine but like I was like I guess this is how you do like business with a capital b sales <laughs> but it's not a capital b <laughs> right like that's the whole mlm thing is like this is business when it's like it is absolutely not business and it is absolutely predatory and fucked up and weird to like reach out to random strangers and like prey on what you perceive as their weaknesses or their or their interests because you scoured their social media profile to see if they you're basically profiling a client and then it's just, it's ass backwards. It's so gross. And so I was doing that. And at the same time, I was on all these calls, like with my coach and her many downlines. And I was seeing, so these calls would be filled with like 200 people. And I was seeing people all over the zoom screen and everybody was unmiking, unmute, you know, unmuting themselves to talk and just being like, I've been doing this for two years and I'm just not making any money. Like everybody was so frustrated on the calls, except Whoa. for, yeah. That never happens. You had a unicorn call. <laughs> well, it, it was a mix. And that was the thing is I was watching them get shut down. Like it was on every call there was, I sorry, I should, I, I misspoke. It wasn't everybody on every call, but on every large call, there was always at least at least one people, but sometimes more who were like, I'm just like, I don't know. Like I've been doing this. It's just not. And they would just get gaslighted. And the leadership with quote unquote leadership um, was basically like, well, I guess, you know, I don't know. Like you have to want it. You have to like, it's just all, you know, the classic shit, like putting it all back on them. And I was watching my downline do that. I mean, my upline do that to people. And then another piece of this all was, I, from the beginning of my quote unquote business, my Beachbody business, I was like, I want this to be a fair and equitable thing. And I was trying to use language that was inviting because I didn't want, so I'm, I am a thin white cis woman and I, (laughs) I was told to put, this is a, I was told by my upline that it was very important for me to do the workouts, right? Mm -hmm. And also post before and after pictures of myself from doing these workouts. So I'm posting before and after pictures of an already extremely thin person and being like, look at all the progress that I made in this program or whatever. And then inviting other people to do the, the fitness program with me, but using language that I really believed in that was like, I don't want anybody, like everybody is welcome. Like the goal here is not thinness. Like, like I don't, this is not the experience I want to create for everyone. Like this is just, if you want to do these workouts and you want some, you know, accountability and community doing them, like, let's do it. I'd love to hold this space, whatever. But my very, the image of my body and before and after pictures is violence. When put in that context, it is ridiculous to say that like, these are my values, but here I'm going to show this before and after picture because we're going to see the quote unquote progress on my body, which was just a thin body getting thinner. And then I, I actually would love to just pause you just for a second. And if you wouldn't mind really, like, I, I think that we should go a little bit deeper into like, why, like you called that violence. And like, I think that there are definitely people listening that 
probably were like, Ooh, that's harsh. Like, mm. can you explain to people why you chose that wording? Cause I have a very good feeling that you had a good reason for it. So, well, we live in a f- anti-fat society, right? Like our, our society, it's it, fat people are system. It, they experience systemic harm. Not only is there stigma, not only do they experience one-on-one um, aggression and microaggressions from people in their personal lives or from strangers on the street. There's also issues like, and I want to, I want to shout out, um, Aubrey Gordon, who is the, uh, the creator of the maintenance phase podcast. She is, um, your fat friend. Uh, she, she writes a series called your fat friend. Um, and she is the author of the book, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. Um, and that book, uh, and her pod, all her, all of her material draws, um, uh, draws attention to the ways that fat folks are systemically oppressed. And so even things from like, you know, having to purchase an extra airplane ticket, if you are too wide for the seat or, um, or fat folks experiencing medical discrimination, um, and coming to the doctor for all types of, of health problems. And then each time being told that the solution is for them to lose weight. And they're like, you know, my ankle's broken. I don't need to lose weight. I need to to fix my fucking ankle. Um, and, so to promote thinness as a positive thing in any situation is violence against fat people. Also, the history of anti-fatness in the West is rooted in anti-blackness. So really promoting thinness is, is it's, it does like a multitude of damages um, because, and, and this is all highly Googleable. I'm not going to tangent too deeply into the yeah. histories of these things, but I do recommend Aubrey Gordon's work. Um, I also, uh, want to shout out Cecily Bowen, the author of bad fat black girl. That's an amazing revolutionary book. Um, and, um, you know, that's just to name a couple of folks whose work I, has directly been, um, educational for me. Uh, and, yeah. So like me, so, so it becomes even more violent when you're profiting off of it. Right. So like me as a thin white woman being like, here's my before and after pictures. Let me use these as a way to advertise yeah. anything I'm doing. Um, because no matter what I said, I believed back then. And no matter what I consciously thought I believed subconsciously, I was okay with posting before and after pictures with more thinness as a measure of my progress. Right. But making myself feel better by couching it in words like I'm stronger. I'm, you know, whatever I have more energy, but that's not what that shit is. That's not what diet culture is. And I was, I was trying to create an inviting space where people of all different bodies and, um, and ethnicities felt comfortable to come, you know, into my coaching containers and do workouts with me or whatever. Um, and because Beachbody is an extremely white organization and that's not my community and those aren't my, my friends are not primarily white folks. And I really wanted to reach in and into my, that was what we were taught to do, reach into your personal networks. And I'm like, okay, so if I'm marketing workouts to my personal networks, I know who's in my personal networks and I don't want anybody to feel excluded or like I am promoting this traditional narrative of fitness, even though there, I just eventually realized there's no way 
for me to stay in Beachbody and not promote this white supremacist version of fitness. Right. Be also because like, and my, my upline was not helping. I was trying to, I asked her point blank many times, like, Hey, like, could you introduce me to a team of like, mostly people of color? There's not all of the teams are majority teams, whatever you call them, like coaching downlines, whatever you call it. Yeah. They're all almost exclusively white people. And I very quickly started to see it in my own downline that I was recruiting people from, you know, marginalized communities who did not have people in their communities who were going to spend $80 a month on fucking shakes, which is part of the beach body deal. And so like, it was just a, it, it, it didn't take long for the cognitive dissonance to just be overwhelming. And for me to be like, hold on a minute, why don't I just start my own coaching shit? And like, I can get paid and I will not indoctrinate people and I won't, it won't be about fitness, but like, I liked the part that was like, you know, being people's cheerleader and helping people believe in themselves and helping people, you know, see their magic and all that stuff. And I was like, I'd like to hone that skill that feels like an innate part of who I am that likes to help people step into their power and feel into their power and their individuality. And I absolutely can't do it in this context. And I realized I was hurting my downline and that it was just like a harmful message overall that I was promoting. And I just started to believe in it less and less. Like if I ever believed in it at all, like I definitely believe that like fitness or whatever, like working out could be like something for everyone, but I could, I saw that Beachbody did not value every body, you know, like even in their workout videos, their workout videos are so thin focused and like get the ripped abs and like whatever, like get your anchor arms. Like, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about, I mean, this is pulling away from your story a little bit, but uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're rebranding to include body positivity in their movement. Oh my gosh. Yes. The face. (laughs) Um, So what are your thoughts about that? Because I think that they're, in my opinion, they are just sprinkling. Well, they're not even sprinkling. They're just dumping white supremacy into a black founded movement. That sounds right. And I, I, so my understanding of the body positivity movement is actually that it was started by white women. Um, and I say that because the body, body positivity as a movement is largely criticized by the pro fat movement because body positivity is kind of, um, uh, focuses a lot on like um our personal feelings about our body rather than the systemic reasons why people with certain bodies are explicitly barred access to resources and so I'm not surprised that Beachbody has chosen body positivity as the way to go rather than like radical pro-fatness because if they were to embrace radical pro-fatness their company would dissolve (laughs) um because i mean my 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 like meta thought on that is that there is no way that an mlm can be an equitable or just environment and so it doesn't matter how many like labels they slap on it um it's it will always be an oppressive cult. <laughs> yes. And this is why I have so many issues with MLMs getting the B, B Corp stamp. 
Mm -hmm. um, because being a B Corp means that you care about the environment and cares and you care about the people around you. And that is not what an MLM is. Like you are no. taking advantage of people flat out. So. Flat fucking out, man. I see how, like, I, I want to say, like, I see how people can stay in it. And I think maybe if I'd been in a different MLM, it might've taken me longer, mm -hmm. but it's just that my values were so explicitly um, challenged at every turn. But maybe if it had been like a makeup LM MLM or something, I would have been, right. I'd still be in it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, some of the things that you would have probably ran into is just like the, like very, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of it, but like the lack of um, diversity and like skin tone stuff. Um, it's like, here's one yeah. shade of black and like, uh. Yeah. In the makeup MLMs. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it would have reared its head no matter what. But yeah. like in Beachbody, I see, I saw the people I was in the, like a, the people who were, my upline is like a, a white woman and all of her sort of like associates associate people I don't know what you the coaches at her quote-unquote level or whatever they were all white like everybody on the calls was white and also straight and I'm queer and like I I just was in I had my real world was so different from the world that I was seeing in Beachbody um which is also like a pro u.s imperialist organization like it's just they i uh, i don't if there's any beach body folks out there i don't know if you know that like your purchases fund the u.s military which is like i didn't know that when i signed up but i found it out uh deep in and i was like this is all types of not cool for me and i but i saw i saw like the military culture that there's like, like a, there's like a strong like white pseudo Christian I call it pseudo Christianity like the version of Christianity in our country that's like hates gay people black people immigrants and and women and you know whatever that's like the the synthetic version of Christianity that our that our country um uh you know has um a deep-seated relationship with there was a lot of that and I see how it, you know, it was all online and I was seeing where the other people were from. And a lot of them were like from small Midwestern towns or whatever. And I was like, oh, I see how it's possible for you to stay blind to all of the ways that, the, well, I see how it's possible for you to choose to stay blind to yeah. all of the ways that this is a harmful thing. Because in your straight white culture, you don't have to think critically about the idea that valuing thinness reinforces heteronormativity, white supremacy, and like thin supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Just wow. Like so many truth bombs dropped. I love it. Um, also love taking Shanti's verbiage in a Beachbody episode. Um, always. Uh, Wait, taking what? Like, uh, Shanti. Oh, Shanti. Oh, yeah. I thought you said Shantice. I was like, who is Shantice? Is that a trainer? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Shanti. <laughs> well, I, I wish that he would get out of Beachbody because he's so fun, but 
Oh, but anyways, so, um, yeah. So tell us about your pivot and like, what happened after that? Like, how did you become the person that you are now? How, <laughs> like, I mean, where did this all bring you? Well, I know it's so funny. I, in, I really do credit my Beachbody experience as this like very important moment in along my path. Um, and because it really showed me, it really showed me a lot of my shadow, like of uh, as, and it showed, it showed me like who I could be if I chose to be as a thin white woman. Um, and I'm really, I'm really glad that I had that experience. I'm, I'm glad that I got to see sort of, um, that because that type of, there are so many cults that when you look at them, when you really look at the dynamics inside of them, whether it's like Scientology or Beachbody or Nuxium, it's, if one were to really think critically about white supremacy, patriarchy, and heteronormativity, that none of these cults could exist. And so I'm really glad that I had this experience in one form or another um, so that I could see sort of like the inner workings of an extremely um, like normative mainstream culture normative environment because that's not the environments that I'm typically in as a stripper as a queer person as an artist as somebody who's like largely been in friend groups that are not majority white and so as a white person it's really important for me to be able to see um all white spaces and how they function um because that gives me perspective on myself and my own potential to cause harm um, in any aspect of my life, especially in including in any public work that I do or business that I do. Um, and uh, it, it helped me to see, it helped me to have like, you know, having direct experiences in a, in a business quote unquote framework or a professional framework, quote unquote, I don't even call it that either, but having these experiences where I can see how easy it is to um, be a vessel for systemic oppression really helped me build a business that I feel good about (laughs) because I was like, hey, like that kind of a manual for a lot of like what can go horribly wrong if you are not critical about it. Um, But so what happened was that that summer, a lot, a lot fell into place for me. Um, that summer I was, like I said, I was living in Portland, Oregon. So that was also, I was also engaged to a white man at that time. Um, and it was the first, it was the first serious relationship I'd ever been in with a white person. And I was also living in an extremely white city and I was brand new to that city. So there was a lot happening in my life that was waking me up to, um, whether or not like waking me up to what I could be complacent in if I chose to. And, um, 
the guy that I was, that I was with, that I was engaged to at that time, like super nice guy. Want to like just shout him out wherever he is. Hope he's well. Um, and, but he had like an extremely white social circle. And I realized not only I had not quite fully unearthed my queerness yet. Like it was definitely had always been, I'd always been aware of it, but it, it wasn't until a little bit later that that all shook out for me. But, um, but either way, regardless of whether I'm gay, like I realized that I could not go further. I could not go through with marriage with this person because he wasn't thinking critically about his role as a white person, especially as a white man. And I was like, I can't raise kids with this person. Like it's just not going to be possible for me. Um, and so um, I broke off that engagement. I, I quit Beachbody. I broke off that engagement. And I was like, Portland, Oregon was not the place for me at all. I was like, I'm ready to go back East. I'm ready to go back to Boston. So I went back to Boston and I was like, I have all these, like, I, I just got a taste for the world of coaching. Also my best friend, um, who is, uh, her name is Sarah Beyer and she is the founder of what would go on to be intuitive edge coaching. She was starting her life coaching business at that time. And, um, at the time I was in the MLM and she really helped me see the cognitive sort of dissonance of what was going on in the MLM while she was starting this equitable life coaching business that did not coerce clients and instead right. just like invited them in if they wanted to come. And if you don't, that's okay. And didn't try to sell shit to all her friends. Um, and so that summer I was like, whoa, I just like stepped out of my life as it was, but I, I'm learning about this like cool world of coaching that I'm kind of into. And so that summer I coached people in dance um, and that felt really good. And I liked it. And I went back to stripping. I went back to my club in Boston and um, that was summer of 2016. And then I was like, I was just having this huge catharsis and cause I had just gotten out of this like relationship that I really didn't want to be in. And I was like, I'm just going to be with myself. Like I hadn't been ever really fully with myself. And then I spent the rest of 2016 really kind of just like courting myself. And, um, yes, love that. Yeah, it, it was awesome. And, and I also, I had always wanted to, um, make music. I was in a band when I was, uh, in my late teens and I put it down, um, you know, because of lack of faith in myself and all this shit. And, I was like, fuck that. I was 26 years old at the time. And I was like, I'm, I'm 26. I'm gonna do music. Like, why not? Like, I, I, keep, I think about it all the time. Why don't I just do it? And so I had always been like a go, go, go type of person. And in that summer, I was like, I'm just gonna live. I'm just gonna like, see where the wind takes me, see, like, explore my passions, explore myself, be with myself. And I started writing music and I started writing poetry. And I started going to this open mic, which was a queer event and very quickly into that process, you know, was around hella cute queer people and my queerness finally like revealed itself to me in a way that made sense to me. And, and I realized like, oh shit, yeah, I'm like gay as fuck. And so that was like this huge personal revolution um, and spent the next, you know, stretch of time really, really trying to like live my values fully and recognizing that the experience that I had just had felt, I, I never felt more removed from my sort of center than when I was like living in this cultish world of whiteness on multiple levels, like in the MLM, but also in Portland and also to some degree in my own relationship. And, 
Um, and so I kind of, I, I started to kind of put all the pieces together. And when I had gone back to stripping, like stripping was a big theme to the music that I was writing. And, um, you know, I was talking about it in a political sense in in the, at the open mics that I was at. And um, so I started to really kind of like refine my understanding of my own positionality in the world and how I can best use my privileges to um, kind of shine a light on the way that I and also my community members are oppressed, which is like a myriad of ways. Um, and so uh, just really started to like, I, I started to really realize that like um, my personal, I wanted to cultivate personal relationships that really reflected my values. And, uh, and so I focused all of my energy on that. Like cultivating my relationship with self first. And then also like being really discerning about who I was friends with, who I would go on dates with, who I would collaborate with artistically, who I would do business with. And, um, and at the same time, I was, I literally had no professional plans. So I just let myself rock for like a year and a half, all of 2017, I was writing my first EP and I also was in my first queer relationship and that relationship ended up being like wildly abusive. And so, um, that I was, I was experiencing misogynistic abuse from somebody who at that time identified as a woman and a lesbian. And that started to really, that experience while it was happening and, and afterwards really shaped the way that I was, um, sort of conceiving of misogyny, patriarchy, oppression, these things, and but also the ways that I was producing work around it. And so um, my my writing, my poetry and my music projects kind of wrapped up in 2018. And I also um, had had my first big split with that partner at the end of 2018 and ended up moving to New York. And they sucked me back into that one more time. Well, I will say I was sucked in, sucked back into that dynamic one more time before we finally split towards uh, fall of uh, 2019. And, um, and yeah, so that was, it was, it was kind of this way for me to transition into creating a body of work that reflected my experiences as a queer femme who is also a sex worker and a survivor of partner abuse from people of multiple genders yes wow wow <laughs> just so much there that was that was a lot wow what what a journey that you just took us on um so what I would love to go into and we talked about this a little bit offline is just the comparisons between uh, domestic violence relationships and being in a multi-level marketing cult, in my opinion. Um, what are your thoughts? What are your parallels that you've drawn through your experience? Can you, whatever you feel comfortable speaking to? Yeah. Thank you so much for that question. Um, so in 20, so 2019 was like the last 
my my last leg of bullshit with my uh with my previous abuser and um so actually by the time 2020 came 2019 was my like great depression year Mm -hmm. um and so by the time quarantine happened in early 2020 I was actually emotionally set up very well for like a long period of like silence and self-reflection. Like I was in therapy. I had just gone through this huge ordeal and I was, um, I had gotten into therapy like a month before lockdown and, um, and with a new therapist, which was really helpful. (laughs) And that was the first, that was the first therapy I'd had since while I was with my abuser, like in 2018. So it'd been like a whole year of no support really. And me kind of not even really talking to my friends fully about what was going on with my abuser in 2019. Cause I had already left them and all this. And I was like embarrassed to still be involved with them. And, um, and so when 2020 came around, I was finally in a place where I was like really slowing down and able to kind of like, um, digest everything I had gone through because I was in, I was in a healing phase. And, um, so quarantine personally like suited me quite well and uh I started doing a lot of writing and social media stuff around um around abusive relationships and um I I I, oh I got I think I got put on to a podcast about sort of like COVID denialism And from there, from thence, my obsession with uh, cult dynamics came into play. I'm not obsessed with horror stories. I'm not obsessed with like the gory details of, of people who have been in cults. I don't like get off on the trauma porn of it. What I am really interested in is how people miss the, miss the signs or are able to, um, you know, uh, rationalize what's going on. And, and as I got more and more, um, you know, kind of overtaken by my interest in how these things happen, the more I learned, the more I was like, Oh, this is exactly like being in an abusive one-on-one relationship. And I totally see how people can, because, because before I would have said like, Oh, I don't see how anybody could get sucked into a cult, even though and probably I was smug about it because I didn't really get super into Beachbody. Like I was able to see the red flags in Beachbody and um, get out pretty quickly and pretty well unscathed. Um, And, but being able to see how hearing firsthand accounts from folks like yourself um, or like uh, you know, the, the people who survived Nexium, that was a big one that I um, did a lot of like, deep, deep spelunking on and, but a lot, I just, I've consumed so much stuff from cult survivors and I've read books and, um, and I really, I really see how it's so the same. And that's been really helpful for me to recognize because I think there's a lot of stigma. There is a lot of stigma against people who stay in abusive one-on-one relationships, which is why I was so ashamed to talk about it once I had gone back to my abuser so many times, but I really feel like there's even more stigma against people who are in cults or have been in cults. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to kind of circle back to what you were saying about like, um, 
consuming a lot of cult content and like cult stories and things like that. And that's really important to like why these podcasts exist is because we watch those things. We consume that stuff because we are making sure that we are not in those situations. Like that is our way of, you know, checking and checking and checking to make sure that we are still safe and that we don't end up in these situations. And though a lot of us get kind of wrapped up in the entertainment value of people's stories it's real like that's why we keep watching them that's why even though so many of these MLM stories are exactly the same people will listen to every single episode because you need to make sure that you didn't fall for something else yeah and I think also like even listening to cult survivors stories like I I feel comforted and like especially in 2020 when I was when I was really sitting in the aftermath of all the abuse, like I, I felt like a kindred spirit with folks who had gone through like cultic abuse because I was like, yeah, like I really understand how we, how we as human beings are set up to be susceptible to these things. And, and that made me feel less alone. And it made me feel less sure that I'm not stupid. Um, and I really, I really want that more for folks who've had these experiences. Like I want people to recognize that like, like it's just so common and that's actually, so now, which I do definitely think is a, um, in line in the trajectory of my beach body <laughs> moment in life. I'm actually writing a book about relationships and it's like, it's like a how-to, it's an interactive, it's basically how to do these things, like how to build relationships that reflect our actual values and then how to, how to basically like disrupt systemic oppression in our relationships so that we don't replicate it because we're kind of set up to replicate it. Like if we're not approaching our relationships critically, we're set up with mainstream narratives that do create power imbalances between people on an individual level, which very easily ripples out into a community level and makes it possible to have cults. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And like, you know, I think what we say here all the time, I I think it was Mike Rinder that initially said it, but you don't join a cult, you join a good thing. Um, and that's the same thing in domestic violence relationships. Like there are parts of being in that relationship that provide value that are, make it seem like it's worth it for at least part of the time. Totally. And totally. No, you always have that memory of that part that was really, really good. And that's what makes it really hard to leave because, you know, it, you don't want to feel like you're invalidating your experiences, right? Yeah. And sometimes admitting to being in a bad experience makes you feel like you're not allowed to enjoy the good parts. And that's one of the things that we kind of talk about on this podcast a lot is like, like, I loved going to Vegas. I had so much fun at my giant cult event. Yeah. And like, it's hard to hold that, that I had a fun time with the people I was there with and also hold, I was at a giant cult event. <laughs> all in the same thing and people have a really hard time with that and I think it's the same thing with um you know relationships and you know even reg- like regular I don't know non-violent relationships I guess 
um, you would like, there are still parts of those relationships that weren't good. That's why like some of them end. Right. And that's like, okay. To still hold the feelings of these times were good. And these times weren't so good. Yeah, totally. Yes. And I, I also like, that's something that I'm, I'm glad that you said that. And something that I really try and push back on is the narrative that like people who love their abusers are crazy. That's like, it's not true. Like I, I, I think that, you know, many, many people are stuck in abusive dynamics. Many folks with their own families, many people grow up in abusive dynamics and stay in those dynamics with their families forever. And I, I really think that we as a society need to change the way we look at that and understand that it's actually, it can actually be used as a tool for repair. I think, I think that like a lot of times people who have experienced abuse, whether in a one-on-one dynamic or in a system dynamic, like a family or a cult, oftentimes the whistleblowers are like the only ones willing to say the truth about the abuser or the abusive system. Right. And, but that doesn't mean that they're not having like an equally human experience. And to say that, oh, if you're blowing the whistle on this thing, whether it's your, your abusive partner or your abusive cult, like, oh, if you're blowing the whistle on this thing, then you're crazy to want anything good to happen to these people or whatever. Like I, I don't want anything bad to happen to my abuser. I, my deepest wish is that they will, you know, be able to get the help that they need. And also that, that, you know, they could potentially like stand in owning what they've done, which they can't, they can't get the help they need if they can't acknowledge and own what they've done. But that's true of any, any abusive entity, But those of us who survive so often hold this like extremely important key, which is an actual mirror for that person's actions. And I think that like so much of the fear that is like, well, so much of the, what is normalized in our culture is, oh, well, that's your problem. That's your business. I shouldn't get involved. And actually, like, I think it's the opposite. I think that like people who survive abuse should be protected by community and but also for community to fully protect us community has to be willing to say like okay I'm going to stand and hold the mirror with you so that this abusive person or entity has nowhere else to go we're going to stand around this person or thing in a circle with mirrors so that they must look at themselves and then if they still don't want to change then okay then we can remove them from community but if like there's no if if we give them anywhere of an out anywhere where they don't have to see a mirror they're going to go there because that's how humans work <laughs> wow wow that was really cool i have never thought of it that way wow 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 my brain just broke while you were talking <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. I, oh, I don't even know. I don't even know where to go with that. Like that was, that was so cool. Like if we are able, and I, I think I really like what you spoke to about like community in general and like the fact that community needs to be there for people that are survivors of these situations and being able to hold up the mirror. It's just like how I think that 
the issue is, is that asking for help is so hard and the judgment is so hard. And that is part of the reason why uh, this podcast is the format that it is, because I pray, I'm not a religious person, so I, that's not really the word that I like, but I, I hope and wish for uh, these people that are in these commercial cults that will listen one day and they aren't going to feel like we're calling them out because yeah, these are the, the gentle mirrors that we have is telling our stories without bashing everyone around us. And hopefully these people can look at them and say like, oh my God, that was me. Like, yeah. like maybe the story isn't actually about you, but it's like, oh my God, like I did those things too. Yeah. And so much shame, right? Like, like anybody who's been through an abusive situation, like a lot of us are very familiar with the feelings of shame. But then also when we realize we've hurt other people, there's the guilt too. There's guilt and there's shame. And really, culturally, we're not really taught what to do with shame. Like we're not taught, we're not taught that we're allowed to feel it and still be loved like shame is such a it's such a blocker to love and it because it it makes us feel like we're not worthy of redemption or you know changing our course or whatever it may be yeah I think that's so true and I think that's a huge issue like I know that when I got out I was initially like okay like how can I uh, apologize to as many people as I can. And there are still people that I have not apologized to because I am so embarrassed. Um, and like some of them, it's like, like there are people that I like never, ever, ever talk to, but I'm like, I wish that I could like go back and repair that, but I don't know how to anymore because I'm so embarrassed. And even now, even with me talking about this publicly to 2000 people, I'm still like, I'm embarrassed to message this one person privately and be like, I'm so sorry for being like the way that I was. I struggle with that as well. Like, especially I had a very small downline because I didn't last for very long. Maybe I had like four people or something in my downline, but there's one of them in particular that I feel like I really, you know, wasted her time. And, and I've gone back and forth with whether to reach out and, and every, every situation is different and everybody should do what's in their heart. And for me, it keeps coming down to like, yes, I definitely have feelings of like shame and embarrassment around the whole situation, but what it comes down to for me is usually I'm like, I don't know if, if it's my place to reach out to her. Like, I don't know if she wants to hear from me, you know, like, I don't like, it's been a long time. She's moved on, you know, I'm sure she's moved on with her life from the six months we were in Beachbody, but I am. And of course, like, I'm not suggesting, I'm not giving that as advice or anything. I'm just trying to reflect that I have a similar sort of experience sometimes when I think about that yeah that's really interesting too like to think about like is this even a wanted apology or is it more of a like I have one person that I apologize to and they like could not understand why I was apologizing to them Mm, yeah all they were like what and like not in a like uh like I mean they were saying kind of like don't worry about it but it was like I could just tell that they like didn't get it yeah. Um, and 
which made me almost more upset because I like the person in particular I'm thinking of like struggled with like uh getting pregnant and like all this stuff and like I was being told by like my uplines and stuff that like I could help her get pregnant Oh, which Jesus. is like the most predatory, one of the yeah. most predatory things that MLM people do. So I'm like regurgitating what my uplines are telling me and like, you know, just believing them. And it's yeah. just, oh, just so icky. Even just saying it out loud, I feel so uncomfortable and gross. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that you were used as a pawn. Ew. That's, that's really garbage. Actually, it, that, that makes me, there's something that I did want to make sure I shared publicly and now kind of feels like it feels kind of reflective of that. Very different, but yeah. would you mind if I, if yeah, I share, I'm not trying to like jack your story. No, no um, yeah. I, I was recently watching actually a documentary about a cult and it made me realize all these years later, it finally helped me put my finger on an experience that I had in Beachbody that was by far the most damaging and the only one that I would say did real damage to me as a person. Um, the, the documentary I was watching, it's, I think it's on Netflix. It's, it's, um, it's the one about like the pray away, the gay movement. Ooh, I haven't watched that one. Yet. I, ugh, I think the doc might be called "Pray Away," but now I'm like, shit. I hope that I have it right. But it's it'll be pretty easy to Google. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's yeah, it's called "Pray Away" and it's on Netflix. Great. So it's about like the the um, the attempt to sort of like teach gay Christian kids to not be gay. You know, like yeah. reform camp and all that for conversion therapy. That shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is, you know, it was a cult. It was a cult yeah. of queer Christians trying to pray away their own queerness and then preying on young queer Christians and telling them they're bad and that they can also pray away their queerness while everybody's still queer. Um, and uh, a woman who got out of the, she went through that as a, as a kid, went through the conversion therapy and all that and is now happily married to her wife. Um, she was talking about her experience and all this and she was talking about um, how her pastor really used her as a pawn and used her as like a youth face for the movement. Um, and she had gone through a rape in college from a man and he sort of like coerced her into saying that like publicly on stages, there's like footage of her speaking to a microphone saying that like her assault was why she was afraid to date men. And that like her assault was why she thought she was gay. And she was like, that's not true. That's not my story. Like that's, he, he like made me use this tragedy that happened in my life, this trauma that I didn't want to speak on publicly to further his, you know, further this message that we can pray away our gayness. And not that what happened to me was anywhere close to that level of, um, public or you know whatever it still was really exploitative and my so I was in an abusive relationship when I was about 20 with a man and so I had already gone through that experience by the time I was um in my beach body days which was like five years later or whatever and 
my coach somehow like coerced me into, I had never talked about my, my abuse publicly. I'd never talked about my abuse publicly and I didn't really want to, like, it just never occurred to me to. And she like somehow coerced me into speaking publicly about the idea that like my abusive relationship, like gave me body image issues. Whoa. And that, like, Whoa. Which it didn't. Which it didn't. And so like, and so like I had made all this, like, like I had to like make this Instagram post with like photos of me, like post workout. I mean, sorry, a face, yeah. Facebook post, like this long ass, like trauma dump, which in some ways really was a trauma dump. Cause I had just never spoken about, I just, I, I was like in panic mode. Like I didn't know how to write about it publicly. And looking back, I'm like, Oh, it's cause I never wanted to. And it wasn't a story that I wanted to tell. It felt private in that way. Like I wasn't, I didn't mind being public about the fact that I had survived abuse, but like I, a lot of the details feel like mine and not like something that I wanted to share. And Absolutely. like, and this whole connection to like my body image issues, like I was like basically letting her craft the narrative for me, but then feeling like it was my responsibility. Like she was like, she was like, you know, just share your story. People want to hear your story. And there was just no boundaries, no, right. no respect for my personal boundaries, my relationship with myself, my relationship with my life story, nothing. Yeah. Wow. So, what happened to you? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say that's gross. It was gross, but it's also gross that somebody like tried to use you to like s- spread misinformation to a yeah. pregnant person about the fact that you could help them get pregnant. Like, yeah, yeah. You are not yeah. a fertility doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um. So I just, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind touching on because I have you here and you do have a, a career made in stripping, and you know I think that that is like it's such a valid way to make money, and you're gonna make way more money stripping than you ever will with an MLM. So if anyone is leaving MLM and they are interested in stripping, what would you advise them to do other than to listen to your podcast and to follow you on social media? What a good fucking point. Yes, you're gonna make way more money in the sex industry than you'll make in an MLM. And actually, so I give advice to new strippers so often that I actually um, recently created a resource page. So I would advise you to go check that out. It's at a strippersguide.com, which is my website. And you can, you'll see a tab that says resources for sex workers. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm yeah. saying that I, in my desire to help new strippers, it's, a, a, I've been creating resources for many years on the subject. And so it's not by no means, is it like all I'm telling you what to do or anything like that, but it's right. like, here's the basics. Like if you go there, you're going to find the, your basic questions answered. You're going to find your not so basic questions answered. You're going to find ways you're you just go there, go visit that. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my easiest answer. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can definitely put that in the show notes. Um, but other than that, do you feel like there are any barriers to like, I mean, just like a very basic, like overview of like what you think, like, like somebody, so like, like just like a I mean we're all regular people so like I don't really I'm like trying to figure out what my words are like you know like the average person just getting out of an MLM and they're like well like I could do that and like you know how most people it usually starts as a joke I'm like well I might as well just strip and then like 
how can they like actually go from that to being like this is actually a real option yeah well I I mean I have I have like I literally I have like bang out points yeah. for all that so I'm happy to send you that like yeah it's just the there's so there. many things to think of right like that's why yeah. this is why I created a resource for this because yeah. I get those questions a lot and it's it's not just one answer it's not a short answer okay. but it's not a long answer so I literally have like an article for it that you if you're thinking about becoming oh. a stripper and you don't know where to start like I literally have yeah. on that resource page I have like from thinking about it to I'm already doing it. Like I've got wow. stuff for each, each phase. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely and I also do Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I also do um like info sessions for baby strippers, which is just a quick half an hour call from with me where you come and you ask me all your questions. But go to the resource page first because I want you yes. to read through all the stuff so you like the free stuff that's out there. Because yeah. there's a I already made a lot of I've got like a I've got like a podcast episode playlist on that resource page that's all for new strippers like wow. all the what you need to knows that kind of stuff so yeah tell us about like so you're an author you're you're you, you've told us that you're so many things so like <laughs> where can we find you what can we find when we find you tell tell us what where we can get more of you so you can find me at a strippersguide.com. You can find me on Instagram at a strippers guide. You can find me on YouTube at a strippers guide. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am, I'm not super consistent on Twitter, but like it's in my goals. Like I really want to be. So my, I, I'm an aspiring tweet tweeting person but that's also at a stripper I'm aspiring twit so (laughs) that's at a stripper guide as well um and what you will find is support and affirmation for sex workers femmes and queer people um I do a lot in the areas of relationships and breakups and that is relationships with self with others with family with friends with lovers especially for sex workers femmes like there are systemic barriers in place that make relationships unnecessarily hard for sex workers and femmes and that's a real thing and you will be validated in that coming to my content um you oh a stripper's guide podcast streaming wherever you listen also on youtube and um my anywhere you find my content you'll be able to um get on my newsletter if that is something you desire uh but yeah come into the fold I would love wow. to have you and you don't have to be a sex worker to be like up in the stripper's guide community at all like it's a whole broad community full of like wonderful folks of all walks of life that's awesome I'm so excited to introduce uh this audience to you because you're just so cool and like your content is so interesting like I always like like you're one of the people when I am scrolling, I'm always stopping. I'm like, what are you saying? Like, what do you have to say? Aww, you know? Thank you. I uh, feel so humbled that you think that. Thank you so yeah. much. Cause I think you're amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. I feel like I had, Oh, obviously what is your anti MLM? Why? Okay. My anti MLM. Why is the same? Why that drives all that I do, which is that no community based in predatory, exploitative, or uneven power structures 
can be a place where a person can truly thrive. And we are here in this one precious human life that we know of. And why, why waste our time hurting ourselves or others? Absolutely. Oh, I love that answer. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we are done for today? I just think you're fabulous and that you're doing truly divine work. And that's what I want to say. And I, I don't mean divine in a religious sense. I just mean you're doing, you are doing human connective revolutionary work. And I, my hat is off to you for that. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Thank you so much. And I hope that everyone enjoys this episode and has a fantastic Friday and weekend. Bye guys. Hey Huns, I just wanted to take a second to tell you guys about Acorn. And no, this is not a sponsored ad. Acorn is a robo-investing account that I've been using to manage my money since I've started my own small business. I honestly had no idea what I was doing in regards to saving for the future, but knew I needed to start somewhere and thought this was a great way to get the ball rolling. I really like the interactive graphics and watching what's going on with my money. If this is something that you feel interested in, feel free to click the link in my bio to start your own Acorn account and we'll both get $5 added in our accounts for our investing future. Happy savings!